I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. For myself, it's um, it's hard to stop the Christmas spending because you always do want to kind of spend a little bit extra on, you know, on somebody. Or if you buy something else for someone else, then all of a sudden you need to make things equal among family members. Hi, I'm Ian Hedemansing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. The majority of studies these days agree that per capita consumption is now the strongest accelerator of global environmental impact. Our question, have extreme weather events changed your shopping habits? Can we buy our way out of a climate crisis? I'm a vegan. Your carbon footprint is almost instantly reduced just on that one topic. It's unfortunate. It's become almost like this morality thing. There's this idea that if somehow we all just do the right thing, it will add up to a solution. And it won't. I decided I don't need to drive a car. I really enjoy public transport. I don't go to a big grocery store to buy my meat. I don't go to a big grocery store to buy my vegetables. Even if you're not a big shopper, you've almost certainly seen the ads for Black Friday sales and Christmas less than a month away. Tis the season for consumerism. But it wasn't that long ago we were talking about massive wildfires, flash floods, ferocious windstorms. Ahead of COP28 kicking off this week, a UN report warned the planet could warm by 3 degrees by the end of the century unless world leaders act fast. Our show question, have extreme weather events changed your shopping habits? Can we buy our way out of a climate crisis? And in hour two, another shopping-related topic for the full second hour. Some Canadian Tire and Walmart stores are ditching self-checkouts and returning to more cashiers. Self-checkout machines have been associated with increased shoplifting. Our question in the back half, are self-checkouts and receipt checks a mistake? Do you have a story about shoplifting? I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Checkup, the podcast. Cross-country checkups live broadcast from November 26, 2023. So I, I feel that if you were to ask people about climate change, many would say they're concerned about it. And many would say, at least in theory, they would like to change their shopping based on, you know, the best decisions. But this might be a challenging time of year for them to actually put that in action. And our first guest is studying that very dilemma. Jiaying Zhao is an associate professor of psychology and the Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. And I'm happy to say she is here with me in our Vancouver studio. How are you? I'm good. So what about that dilemma that people may be facing, particularly right now, even if they care about climate change, they're trying to have, you know, are they really going to change their shopping habits? This is exactly one of the things you've been studying. And what have you found out? I think people want to change. They care about climate change. They want to reduce their own impact on the planet. But the problem is people don't know what to do. So um, I've been telling people that not all things are created equal in terms of, let's say, greenhouse gas emissions. So we should, what we should do instead of shopping less is buy less of the high-carbon products. Make those shopping items a treat. So mm-hmm. don't buy them on a regular basis. Make that into a one or two 
uh, uh, event over the, over the year. Yeah. So that's number one. Um, and also, I don't want to use the the typical narrative, which is shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that basically call people to do less and give up their life for the planet. Yeah, because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, all the people who are listening now, maybe in their cars, on the radio, on their way to the mall, or on their way back from the mall with bags behind. The last thing they want to hear is anybody, much less a professor, tell them, you're you're making bad choices, you're a bad person. So instead of that, what do you, what do, you do? So instead of that, um, I've been advocating a whole new approach, which is called happy climate. So what we should do instead is do more of the things that not only reduce emissions, but also make ourselves feel happier. So let me give you an example mm-hmm. in terms of shopping. Online shopping is a great happy climate action because online shopping can reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50% compared to in-store shopping. And this is because we reduce driving and traveling to and from the stores. Mm-hmm. The happiness benefit of that is it saves us time. It gives us time affluence, and that predicts our happiness. So I would advocate for more online shopping if you can, mm-hmm. and instead of driving to and from stores a lot in this holiday season. Well, what about all those delivery trucks? You know, w- w- I still do some of my work from home, and uh, and and I see. I, I was shocked actually when I started working from home. Now, part of it was it was during the height of the pandemic, but even now, the number of delivery trucks that come by, and as every time I see, for some reason, that to me feels like I, I feel like what's happening to the climate in a way that I don't necessarily feel when I drive somewhere to go to the store. I mean, am I kind of looking at this the wrong way? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, transportation around delivery s- systems is actually very efficient. Mm-hmm. It's actually way more efficient than us driving our own cars oh. multiple times a week. Yeah. That's why it can save uh, emissions by 50%. So, you know, as much as we, we, we like shopping, I would say there are things we can do to reduce the environmental impact. Now, I, I'm so pleased to be speaking with you and speaking with you in person here that I, I interrupted you when you were going through the sort of one, two, three. I, I'm not sure. Is there still a third point that you wanted to make? Yeah. yeah. So when we uh, want to buy gifts and things for the holidays, I would suggest buy things that last. Um, try not to fall for the buy and toss trap mm-hmm. that you know, a classic example is fast fashion. Uh, so I would say, if you want to buy something new this holiday, uh, buy something that will last a long time. And for the things that you want to get rid of at home, uh, try donating it, recycling it, um, just not throw that item in the landfill or in the garbage stream. Mm-hmm. So these are kind of the, the happy climate advices. Yeah, I mean, really practical advice and advice that doesn't make me feel bad about myself when <laughs> yeah. I hear you say that. We're speaking live with Jia Ying Zhao, a Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. And our question today, have extreme weather events, have you changing your shopping habits? Can we buy our way out of the climate crisis? Our number is one 888 You can Text us as well. I'm going to read the text number a couple of times. 226-758-8924. Professor, uh, I I was mentioning at the beginning of the program that here in British Columbia in particular, the wildfires, whether they were in our province or in, uh, you know, close, close to us. um, Had a lot of people I know really nervous in the summertime. But do you think that, that that does translate into making people change their behaviors, for example, when it comes to shopping? Not so much, um, because the link between wildfires and climate change is not very strong. It's not fully explicit in a lot of people's minds. Mm -hmm. 
So we can say that we need to reduce our emissions, but it's unclear that for most people, their individual actions can make a dent in global climate change. So what I've been saying uh, is our actions do matter. Uh, what we buy, what we consume is the driver of emissions, um, and we can be a lot more smarter about that. I don't think the answer to this is either or, but I'll ask the question that way. Like, is it about individual choices or is it about lobbying governments to make changes? Both. Mm -hmm. I would say absolutely both. We need individual change as well as system change, not either or. You've obviously not only studied this, but you've thought a lot about it and you talked about your approach in terms of uh, adjusting behaviors. And so let, let's finish with this. Uh, w if people who are listening and completely agree with you, but they want to try to convince their family members or friends to change habits, what's some advice you'd give them? I would say just talk about it, but talk about it in a non-shaming or guilt-tripping way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the trap we easily fall into. You know, you shouldn't do that. Why would you do this? I think that's something to be, we need to be very careful of. Instead, we should focus on things that will make people feel better, that will increase their well-being, as well as fighting climate change. I think that's the sweet spot we need to go. Yeah. And you are doing research on this right now because you're writing a book. And is that book going to be aimed uh, primarily to an academic audience or, or more widely? It's a popular science book that I'm writing with Liz Dunn, yeah. uh, who is the happiness scientist. Um, we hope the book will be done at the end of next year. Well, I hope you'll come <laughs> back and talk about it. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Ying Zhao is an associate professor of psychology and the Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. Stay tuned. In a few minutes, I'll speak with a sustainable design professor on how you can make a difference by buying differently. So we'll continue this theme, obviously. That's because our question this hour is, have extreme weather events changed your shopping habits? Can we buy our way out of the climate crisis? Our number, 1-888-416-8333, or you can reach us by cbc.ca slash aircheck. And some of the people who have reached out to us online include Holly Franklin, who did go to aircheck. She's in East York, Ontario. My awareness has solidly shifted towards plant-based foods. I do extensive research when choosing these alternatives, seeking out organic to avoid pesticide use and avoiding things like almond milk. Nancy Jackson emailed us from Peterborough, Ontario. Yesterday, she says, I upgraded my iPhone 6. I switched my carrier so I could have a plan that allowed me to keep my phone after a two-year contract. Trading in for the newest version every two years is definitely bad for the environment. And Kathy Stevenson on the former Twitter now called X, climate change is one of the reasons I went vegan five years ago. I'm also conscious of plastics overpackaging and trying to remember my eco bags. All right, let's go to the phones now. Mary Young-Lecky is in Toronto. Hi, Mary. How are you doing, Ian? Good. Um, so what about you? Has extreme weather, has concern about climate change uh, changed the way that you shop? It has. I and mean, first of all, I shared with your producer that climate change had a very immediate effect on our family. We had a little beach house in the Bahamas, and in 1999, it was destroyed completely by Hurricane Floyd. Wow. And almost 25 years to the day later, another hurricane, this one even bigger than Floyd, <laughs> Hurricane Dorian destroyed the homes that were remaining on this little island that belonged hmm. to good friends of ours. So we're really very aware of the effect of climate change. Mm -hmm. And um, being now a big family of 10 with our kids, uh, grown kids and their, their mates, their spouses and grandkids, we're trying to really minimize what we do in terms of shopping. And so give me an, an example of that. 
Well, first of all, my kids turned me on to recycling, reusing, and stooping. Stooping Toronto is a very cool little site on Instagram. And um, you just go on there, and if somebody's got a great sofa that's out, you can go and pick it up for free. Hmm. Or if I'm getting some stuff that I don't need anymore, I put it out on the curb and post it. Um, and our Christmas exchange has gone from everybody giving everybody gifts that probably a lot of them, your previous guest was talking about, fast shopping or mm-hmm. fast clothing. Um, we tend to, well, we now draw names and just give to one person out of the whole group. And we're trying now to exchange things that we think the other person would like that we may already have, like a great bottle of wine or a favorite book or a pair of shoes that might fit um, one of my kids and I don't wear. I mean, you got to do it with love and you can't just unload stuff on other people in the <laughs> yeah. family. And I'm sure there'll still be some purchasing happening, but we're trying really hard because climate change is here and it's real and we, we really want to do something about it. Yeah, we're speaking with Mary Young Leckie, who's in Toronto, uh, who's called into the program at one 416 8333 answering the question of whether extreme weather events have changed shopping habits. And it has, Mary, as you point out, with you. Although, is it as direct a cause and effect as that, that you, uh, you know, your property suffered damage in the Bahamas due to a windstorm? There was another windstorm that damaged other houses uh, near where yours was, and therefore you changed? Or were other things... Uh, um, in the uh, in the mix as well. I mean, I think certainly uh, those we were aware of climate change way sooner than anybody else. If you lose a place in 1999, mm-hmm. um, so that made us very conscious of it. But what I think mostly we're aware of is the fact that being Canadian, being in a cold country, we've got a huge carbon footprint, and we have to do something to scale it back. So we're mm-hmm. trying to do it in every way we possibly can, not just shopping habits, but it certainly is part of it. But, you know, what I find interesting in, in your story as well, and, and, and it's going to lead to this question, but I just wanted to preface it with this. Um, we all lead complicated lives. Like, so, for example, I fly. I try to fly less than yeah. I used to, and I try to be mindful of that. But I'm also aware of the fact that, that you know, if I fly to go on a trip, um, you know, that is something that, Others might look at and say, like, that's just a bad choice. And I, so I, I personally kind of think to myself, okay, you know, how important is this trip to me? I, I do think it's important to see different parts of the world and have vacations and that sort of thing. But I, I'm mindful of it. Um, and, and so we're all trying to do this balance. And so, Mary, you mentioned a family property in the Bahamas. How, how do you balance that part of your life with your concern about climate change? Well, needless to say, it's no longer in our lives. Mm-hmm. Because it was destroyed uh, by a storm, yeah. It was blown away. I mean, yeah. the biggest piece that was left it was a piece of tile. But what we did do was we bought a boat. We bought a sailboat. Mm-hmm. And sailboats are much less impact on the land. We don't use air conditioning. We sail. We have solar power on the boat. So the holidays that we take are on a boat mostly wow. now. Wow. Um, and that's, I think, another thing we've impressed upon our kids and our kids are big outdoors people that they don't tend to travel mm-hmm. in a big way. They're kids that go on canoe trips on the Peel and on the rivers in Quebec and rivers in Ontario. And um, again, you know, camping out, it, it's just, it's an attitude. It's an approach to life. And I think it's an example that we have to set, but I, I did want to say, you know, I think it was Dr. David Suzuki said a couple of months ago when he was talking about flying I think we should only be taking one domestic flight every five years and one international flight every seven years. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an insane target to try and meet. I don't know how we get our heads around that with the lifestyle that we all lead. Well, but you know what? I mean, there are complications too. My parents live in New Brunswick, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to 
take the train out there and I'm not no. going to see them, you know, only every five years. So um, I think we, we, we want to be mindful of these things. We want to make meaningful choices, but there's some complicated choices too. I commend you, Mary, like, like you really do um, walk the walk. But, but maybe I can finish uh, the, the call with you by asking this. I mean, you're doing so many things right for the right reasons, um, but presumably not everybody in your circle of friends either is able or willing to do that. How do you spread the message? Uh, the only thing I can do is spread it to my kids. Mm-hmm. And they have big mouths <laughs> and big circles of friends, so hopefully it spreads Okay. A lot further through them. Thanks so much for doing this show, this topic, Ian. It's really, it's really important. Yeah, thank you very much for calling in. This is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hannah Mansing. We're live from CBC Vancouver on the CBC News Network and CBC Radio and many other platforms. Uh, our number is one eight 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 four one six eight three three three. And our question is: Have extreme weather events changed your shopping habits? Can we buy our way out of the climate crisis? Uh, let's go to Winnipeg. And Daphne Young has called us up. Hi, Daphne. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm doing really well. And, uh, you know, we're talking about shopping, uh, but one of those things is uh, food that we shop for. And uh, you have a view on that. Yeah, I do. And uh, I did say I was calling from Treaty 1 territory. Mm-hmm. And my view on the food is that, uh, like, for example, my friend's son is a long-haul truck driver for a very big company. He mm-hmm. goes to the U.S. and Canada all the time. And it's 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 really disheartening to hear when he says, "Oh, I'm hauling a load of candy from uh, like Windsor to California," mm-hmm. and then he'll pick up like another load of candy and haul it somewhere else. It's like, are you kidding me? Yeah, a truck full of gummy bears, maybe. Hmm. That's just so sad. And so my thought was on uh, can we buy our way out of this mess if we buy collectively, and as a collective, I think we can all agreed that it would be great to have greenhouses in every city, town, village in this country so that we could uh, have the city staff it. Um, For example, in Winnipeg, there's lots of little greenhouse, uh, little uh, community gardens. Mm -hmm. I don't see a lot of people tending them, but I do see people garden raiding. Mm -hmm. It's like we want access to these fresh foods and fruits. Oranges used to be a Christmas treat only. Why don't we go back to uh, grow? Like, we got to learn how to grow what we want here and stop having these trucks haul stuff around that we don't need to eat. You know, go back to treats. Go back to uh, having real food. Mm-hmm. You know, it's but all about it's all about a balance. It's all about a balance, I guess, Daphne, right? And, and uh, I mean, I assume, so again, like commendable, your, your, your uh, approach. Um, how does that play out in practice when it comes time for you to decide what you're going to buy to eat? Well, uh, I have a grocery store that I can walk to. I do have a car. Um, I think last year I put on about 3,000 kilometers on the car. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, like, you know, I buy what I can afford, especially in this time. Like, I'm on disability. I don't have a lot of money. I have a single parent. Mm-hmm. I go to the food bank. Um, I, I buy what I can. You know, like, there's lots of stuff I don't buy anymore, like yeah. cereal. Um, and apparently like, gummy bears. I, <laughs> candy, can you imagine? Like, it's just, it just makes me cry. Yeah. 
You know, and like we do get treats once in a while from the dollar store because Mm -hmm. it's like, oh no, he's a kid. What am I going to do? Yeah. Daphne, thank you very much for calling the program. Okay. You have a good day, Ian. Yeah, you too. This is Cross Country Checkup, and our question in the first hour, have extreme weather events changed your shopping habits? Can we buy our way out of a climate crisis? Let's go to Vancouver Island here in British Columbia, and Greg Porteous has called us. Hi, Greg. Hi there. And so has there been a change in your shopping habits because of the extreme weather events that we've seen over the last uh, few years, I guess? Oh, absolutely. And it's very much made me aware of uh, what we're purchasing, uh, how much we purchase, uh, that type of thing, the packaging. But the, the reason I'm calling is uh, specifically because I just recently uh, purchased a, uh, an electric range for our kitchen. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was an online purchase. And then uh, it was delivered and put into place. At, uh, but then we decided it didn't need to go back. It didn't wasn't going to work for us. Mm-hmm. And of course, we knew we'd be covered by the, uh, the policy of, uh, you know, full return, etc. But um, they came and they took the the uh, stove away, but then once we looked into it uh, and, and started asking some questions, it turned out that it was going to be um, basically trashed, that, that, no. it, that they weren't going to be putting it back out on the shelf to uh, sell it. Hang and on that, a sec. So really, did I understand what you said correctly, Greg? It's an entire an entire stove? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Brand new. Wow. Never taken out of the packaging. Okay, and this is something that, of course, is built to last for 20 or 25 years or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I assumed that when something was returned like this, that it would, especially because it's still pristine and in its new packaging, mm-hmm. that it would be used for um, for selling to somebody else because, yep. you know, it had never been touched. Um, but then the when I called about it, the woman on, on the phone told me that uh, we couldn't possibly resell any of the appliances that come back to us. So they just, they go to a staging area and, Maybe they can use some of the parts, but otherwise they'll just be trashed. And and I just found that uh, unbelievable that we have a system that can be so wasteful that and and uh, companies that are so you know rich and powerful that they can absorb that kind of a loss. I mean, if if I'd known that that was the case, we would have never returned it. We would have just made do with it, even yeah. though it didn't really quite work for us. Well, we're staying on this topic for another half an hour, Greg. And so if somebody who's listening is uh, in retailing or manufacturing, but particularly retailing of, uh, of appliances and can tell us what, what they're, how they handle that, I think I'd be really interested because I've not heard, um, you, you know, the story that you, you're just mentioning. And I, I, well, I think like you, I'm a little flabbergasted by, by yeah. that. Um, yeah, and so, yeah. so that, that, issue aside and that you would handle it differently the next time around when you, when you ordered an appliance. Uh, can you give me an example of, an, of, is there another kind of significant you've, change you've made um, because of, of your concern about the climate? Well, I think that uh, as far as the purchases, uh, mm-hmm. so let's say produce, for example, my, my wife is uh, very much um, supporting us and, and encouraging us to try and purchase things that are more in season. And not to um, to bring in, um, say, strawberries in December, and you know things that don't grow locally in our climate. So that's that's a big one for us. Uh, she very much is um, encouraging us to stay away from um, produce that's uh, not in season. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for our local um, region, our local climate. So I, I think that's one thing there. 
Yeah, but again, you know, I think I'm going to mention a lot during the program the the importance of balance, right? The, for example, fresh fruits and vegetables, maybe not fresh though. Maybe there's an option there with frozen, but it is important to, you know, from a nutrition standpoint, to to make sure you have a varied diet. So you got to kind of, I think, don't you have to factor that into it as well? Uh, certainly, do Ian. I, I agree. There, uh, we're fortunate. We've got a. A really nice uh, vegetable garden in our yard. We're just in a in a city uh, lot here, so it's not like we're out in the country or anything. But mm-hmm. uh, I really I I work really hard in the garden to try and get um, as many seasonal vegetables as we can out of it. So even now at the end of November, December, there's still uh, six or eight fresh vegetables that we're getting out of the garden, and others that we've got you know put up in the in the garage and that type of thing. So uh, so that that has helped us as well to try and uh, keep a, a nice balance in uh, in our uh, fruit and veg or rather I should say vegetable intake. Greg, you have fresh produce in December or like almost December, late November. Like now you're just showing oh, sure. off. Now you're showing off to the rest of the country. <laughs> I guess I guess. So. <laughs> All right. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> That's right. All right, Greg, thank you very much for calling. Yeah, thanks for taking the call, Ian. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Can we buy our way out of a climate crisis? Maybe we can grow our way out of a climate crisis. Has extreme weather changed your shopping habits? Those are our questions this hour. And our phone number on Cross Country Checkup is one 416 You can also go to cbc.ca slash Air check. So changing behavior in response to climate change can be difficult. Uh, our next guest, though, is trying to set an example. Lloyd Alter is the author of Living the 1.5 Degree Lifestyle, Why Individual Climate Action Matters More Than Ever. He's also a lecturer in sustainable design at Toronto Metropolitan University, and Toronto is where he is this afternoon. Hi, Lloyd. Hi there. So let me start by asking you one of our show questions. Can we buy our way out of this climate crisis? Well, uh, the way you phrase it, I think, is sort of a bit odd. That We can make much better choices. The main thing we have to do is basically buy less. You know, everything that is manufactured, everything that is sold has a footprint from making it. It's basically converting energy and fossil fuels into products. And so the less we buy and the smarter we buy, then the less carbon that is released. You've had some wonderful guests on so far that the professor at the beginning, he was talking about buying some Something that's really high quality and make mm-hmm. it last is critically important. And uh, the gentleman just before who was talking about he doesn't buy vegetables out of season but cans them. That's what my wife does. She spends all August putting up the tomatoes and we have tomatoes all winter. And so you can, if you plan ahead, you can actually buy the right things and not have to buy nearly as much at all. So you touched on some things that people have done or can do to make changes. Uh, let me ask you broadly, what, what sort of choices can we make that can have the biggest impact as, as individuals on this huge issue of climate change? Well, the single biggest factor in every Canadian's carbon footprint is driving. And so the choices we make about what vehicles we buy is critically important. And of course, the biggest selling car in Canada is an F-150 pickup truck, which is exactly the wrong thing to be buying if you care about care about carbon. And it's I guess you need the big truck for all the stuff you're going to buy. I don't know. The 
uh, reducing the amount of driving is critically important. I disagree with the professor who said that shopping online is good because particularly if you subscribe to something like Amazon Prime, where you get same day or next day delivery, there's a lot of trucks going out with not much in them. And we have to rebuild our main streets and our communities. So the best thing that I believe is do your shopping locally. We have an eco store up in St. Clair near where I live. We have other stores within walking distance. Uh, get out and walk and shop. And, you know, gee, if you have to buy smaller things because you can't carry that much, that's buying less stuff, too. Yeah, I, I guess uh, Professor Zhao was probably comparing the efficiency she described of door-to-door of, uh, -door delivery or, you know, delivery trucks um, with the people who get into their vehicles and drive all over the place to buy a few things. Anyway. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Putting that aside for a moment, you know, there are also a lot of real community, social, psychological benefits to taking that walk down to your neighborhood stores and, and supporting, you know, supporting those stores. So lots of, lots of reasons to... Uh, to advocate all of those things. But, you know, at the same time, like you talk about pickup trucks, I'm sure there are people who are listening who need their pickup trucks for what they do. And there are a lot of people who realize, yeah, you know what, I don't actually need this big a vehicle with the, the bed in the back. Um, but I know that one of the things that you advocate and and the impact of this is actually bigger than I realized till I heard, till I saw some of the research here, is e-bikes. Yes, uh, there was just an article out yesterday how uh, the 280 million e-bikes and e-trikes that have been sold around the world have made a difference of like 2% of the oil pumped in all the world, that it's they're making an immediate dramatic difference. And it's a far bigger difference than e-cars, EVs, because People are switching to them much more quickly. A lot of people are using them as car replacements. We're a little behind the eight ball in Canada compared, obviously, to Asia and Europe. Uh, but uh, they are having a huge impact, much more so than cars, actually. They're also having a huge impact on me when I walk because too many people ride those bikes quickly on the sidewalk. But that's a different topic for a different day here <laughs> yes. on Cross Country Checkup. Our topic this hour, can we buy our way out of a climate crisis? Have extreme weather events changed your shopping habits? And I'm speaking right now live with Lloyd Alter, the author of Living the 1.5 Degree Lifestyle. And uh, you can reach us, by the way. You can call us one 888 Three, three. Um, I want to play a clip here. Actually, we're talking about electric vehicles. We're talking about uh, trying to uh, make a difference in terms of climate. And we spoke to Adam Thorne at the Pembina Institute, which is a clean energy think tank, to find out how that transition is going. We're seeing really exciting growth when it comes to uh, the transition to EVs. So recent data sort of revealed that 13% of registrations this year were electric vehicles. And that's about a 40% year-over-year increase. One of the key challenges is obviously the purchase price. Uh, right now, the vehicles are uh, on average more expensive than a comparable internal combustion engine vehicle. Now, uh, ICCT and Bloomberg and others have sort of forecasted that that's likely to change, that we'll see cost parity over the next few years. So we know we have a, a federal incentive worth $5,000. We know uh, both Quebec and BC offer additional incentives that can be stacked on those. So Lloyd, I just wanted to play that clip, but we've talked about EVs, we've talked about uh, electric bicycles. Um, I, I want to uh, finish with with this question to you. You know, your, your book provides guidance on living, as the title says, the 1.5 degree lifestyle. But a UN report warned this week that the world could 
reach as much as a, a 2.9 degree increase by the end of the century unless we take you know rapid, distinct steps to change that trajectory. I just wonder for you personally, how do you stay committed to your own efforts when you hear a projection like that? Well, it's very hard. For instance, the hardest thing that I've had that, to deal with is the one you talked about earlier, which is flying. I like to see the world as well. And in the year that I was truly living the 1.5 degree lifestyle, I didn't fly. Now, conveniently, that was also a pandemic, so I couldn't fly. Mm -hmm. But um, now we're in the situation that most of the things that I did when I was really trying to demonstrate we could live with such a low footprint, we've still done. We ate a lot less red meat then we ate no red meat to speak of. Uh, we've always bought seasonal vegetables, and I e-bike everywhere. But there's another point that the flying is the hardest one because the technological solution for it, they're almost impossible. Um, with the cars, with that clip that you made, mm -hmm. e-vehicles e e are fantastic. But you have to look at what Vancouver and Toronto are doing to promote getting people out of cars, where you've seen the spreading of bicycle networks, uh, separated bike lanes, so they're not in the sidewalk with you. Uh, in Toronto now, I can get to the university without ever going on any road that doesn't have a bike lane. And five years, when I started teaching, I was taking my life into my hands. Mm -hmm. So these are important improvements to make it possible for people to live without a car. Because like you say, even though EVs are dropping in price, they are still more expensive. You and I, though, are lucky to an extent in the cities we live in, the access we have to uh, transportation or an e-bike. And, and, and we both know that there are people out there, first of all, who can adopt uh, you know, a less car-centric uh, lifestyle, but there are also people who really do live in places or, you know, work far away and they, they rely on their vehicles. So it is all complicated, but it is important to look at options and, and you know, kind of take control of the things we can. Uh, Lloyd, thank you very much. A pleasure. Lloyd Alter is the author of Living the 1.5 Degree Lifestyle, Why Individual Climate Action Matters More Than Ever. He's also a lecturer in sustainable design at Toronto Metropolitan University, and he is in Toronto right now. In a few minutes, I'll talk to Canadian activist Zipporah Berman about individual action when it comes to climate change as a consumer and as a citizen. And our question is, have extreme weather events changed your shopping habits? Can we buy our way out of a climate crisis? And our number is one 888 or you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Our next caller is in, uh, or, well, not in, North Shuswap Lake, BC, but in the community there. Palinka Wiseman has called us up. Hi, Palinka. Hi, Ian. So, Thank you very much for the show. I'm a little nervous. I'll get that out of the way so my brain doesn't completely shut down on me. But Absolutely. Yeah. I would say two things about being nervous. First of all, it makes complete sense. I would be nervous if I called a, a network <laughs> call-in show and I was live, but you have, but we, yeah. will, but we will treat you gently. So you, you have <laughs> hopefully you. get over you. that quickly. So, so uh, I mean, have extreme weather events uh, changed your shopping habits at all? Uh, they definitely have. Although my shopping habits have been pretty frugal um, as it is, but definitely over the last three or four years, what with COVID and then with the wildfires, especially in my area, yes, yeah, um, we were, you know, we lost many, many homes and structures on the North Shushwap. Um I worked at the dump for two summers in a row, and the amount of waste we create 
which is actually reusable or repairable, is horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a share shack at our local transfer station, and um, it's a wonderful, wonderful resource. I live in a 24-foot travel trailer, and pretty much, you know, I've got a collection of tools and furniture, and I probably have enough furniture to put in my house when I eventually build it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just such a huge resource, and but so much goes in the bins. Yeah, he described as a society. Maybe we need to normalize sharing and reusing. Uh, There's so much being wasted. Yeah. So you mentioned a share shack. We can all guess what that is, but 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 describe it for me. What does it look like? What's if Um, I were to go there right now? What would be inside it? A small structure with a roof. Um, It's uh, maybe twelve by fourteen, something like that. Mm -hmm. If that and. there's all sorts of things. There's dishes and uh, tape decks and um, planters and anything you can imagine, pretty much. Lawnmowers, mm-hmm. weed eaters. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, garden tools, pots for plants, the pots for your kitchen. I was wondering where pots you were going to go with that one, but anyway, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Pots for pot, too. There's yeah. lots of those. I fished probably a hundred <laughs> huge ones out of the bin one year. I had other people helping me get them out. Yeah. Can you yeah. give me an example yeah. of something kind of interesting or cool or really rewarding that you managed to pull out of that share shack? Oh, gosh. I'm looking around at my place right now, and there are so many things, but um, the thing that caught my eye is a small sign um, that somebody made or bought, and it says Believe, and it's uh, gold-colored. Mm-hmm. And that's hanging next to a beautiful uh, brass, circles with a mirror in the center and it's just beautiful and it it helps me believe that you know we can individually help our planet Polinka, one one last thing you know you're in north shuswap lake and as you say the wildfires were so close and so devastating and so alarming um yeah did you did you notice that I mean, it sounds like you've had this commitment for a long time yourself to try to kind of reduce. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about others? Do you think that, that what happened this past summer uh, changed the kind of attitudes of, of, of some people? I think, I think it is. I think it is. We have a local thrift store at uh, St. David's in Salista, and they've been staying open, um, running on donations from the community. And it's free to anyone who needs. Um, so, and, you know, cheap for anyone who wants. Mm -hmm. So I think people's attitudes are changing and, you know, because of need, they've lost everything in the fire. Yeah. So maybe, maybe it's a catalyst to change. I sure hope so. Polinka, thank you so much for calling. Thank you very much for taking my call. (laughs) Let's go from BC to Collingwood, Ontario. And Barbara Brunton has, uh, has called us up. Hi, Barbara. Hi, how are you? Good. And what about for you? Has uh, concern about climate change, has extreme weather changed your shopping habits at all? Well, in fact, um, it hasn't changed my uh, shopping habits, really, because um, I, I feel like we're just fighting such an uphill battle. And what's most upsetting to me is the fact that nobody discusses the blatant reality and the truth that the worst offenders to climate change in the world go continually unaccountable. 
I mean, you just saw probably today the news that India knows emissions. I mean, it's great. And, and, you know, when are we going to, to call the, call these countries out? I mean, China, they're the worst, uh, offenders in the world of, uh, <clears throat> you know, emissions that are, mm-hmm. are causing the climate change. And I mean, how can we make any difference with buying a green vehicle or, you know, spending time shopping online? And I don't want to be, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, to totally offend people who are doing their bid every single day, but let's face it. You know, we've, you know, when are we going to hold these offenders accountable and yeah. open this discussion globally? I mean, nobody's thought that. Barbara, one of the things I really like about this program and hosting this program is that people like you will call in and be very honest about your point of view. And so um, I, I'm just going to push back gently on this, but 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 I, as I say, I appreciate your candor. What about uh, both of those things happening, calling out countries that are heavy polluters to try to change what they do, but at the same time still as individuals taking on a certain responsibility to to change things? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, I'm not suggesting that anybody stops, <laughs> you know, doing their bit. But I just think, you know, let let's just be realistic here. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're we're fighting a losing battle if unless uh, these countries really step up and and make some serious changes. Yeah, and that needs to be addressed globally. It just does, and it's yeah. just it's it's upsetting to me that that. Uh, you know, and and people think that they can actually do something when they they do ten times the damage we do of one great yeah. um, sort of uh, you change know, that we make. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Barbara, thank you very much for calling. I hope that uh, after we hang up here, you'll continue listening to your phone or watching TV, however you're consuming the program, because I think you'll want to hear our next guest, because uh, one of the questions I put to her will be exactly reacting to what you've said. But thank you very much for calling us. Well, thanks for doing your show and bringing this to the light uh, for Canadians and for the world. Yeah, well, thank you for listening and thank you for calling in. Okay, so our next guest here on Cross Country Checkup and the timing. Believe me, Barbara and our next guest are not in cahoots. It's just the way this happened to work out. But environmental activist Zipporah Berman is here. uh, And I said this the last time I interviewed you. uh, We've been talking to each other uh, across a microphone or a camera probably for, I mean... Could it be 30 20, years? 25 30 years, yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so nice to have you uh, here in our studio. Uh, Zipporah is the International Program Director at Stand Earth, an environmental nonprofit, and chair of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is a global climate campaign and diplomatic initiative. Thank you very much for coming to the studio. Thanks for having me. So you were listening to what Barbara had to say, um, and I, I'm sure she's not the only one who feels like, what difference does it make what I do as one person when there are countries? countries that are far more um, problematic when it comes to the environment. What would you say to her? Well, you know, first of all, I would say that at this moment in history, especially given what we've experienced this summer, you know, 16 million hectares of forest burned, uh, 200,000 people evacuated from across the country, we know Uh, what climate change looks like now. And every ton of carbon that we save from going into the atmosphere right now will save lives. 
that so it's it's not just about what this country does or what that country does or this person or that person. Every ton of carbon right now that we save from going into the atmosphere will save lives. So I think that's always important to remember when you're making a choice. But I think specifically on the issue of China versus Canada's responsibility, look, you know, China is, people in China are are, are much poorer. Uh, than people in Canada. They're deploying renewables way faster. I think the only way we're going to see developing countries, countries that are much poorer, especially per capita than us, charting a course is if we show in wealthy countries with stable democracies that it's possible. Uh, Because we have the ability to transition to renewables and electrification much quicker than a lot of other countries, but we're not doing it. And in fact, this year, Canada is on track to be the world's second largest developer of new oil and gas extraction between 2023 and 2050. So Canada alone could be responsible for 10% of planned emission globally. And this stuff, climate policy is hard, but what's simple is that the, the the emissions trapped in our atmosphere that are causing this blanket, smothering the earth and causing all this extreme weather, they come from three things, oil, gas, and coal. And so we have to create ways to, re- to reduce our use of it, but we also have to stop overproducing it and just start focusing on building the world that we want. So let's talk about those two things. The first one is to continue the theme from what Barbara was saying, our individual ability and responsibility to make changes. And I know just not, I don't follow you around the city, but the last time you and I talk, I know you're very mindful of this in your personal life. Um, So would you say it, I mean, how important is it for us to be more mindful and make changes on an individual level? Well, you know, as a mom, I often think that it is really important because children learn what they live. Um, But as I said before, I think every action matters at this moment in history. This is uh, an issue which is affecting um, all of us. Five million people died this year around the planet just from extreme heat alone. And it's now costing us billions, almost a billion dollars this summer just to deal with wildfires. So it's changing everything. It's changing food prices. It's changing our our life expectancy. It's changing everything. So we have to be responsible and we have to do what we can. I think that that's right. But we can't just think of ourselves as consumers at this moment in history, as shoppers. We have to think of ourselves as citizens. We have to think about what we do, not just about what we buy, because we're not going to chop our way out of this. Mm-hmm. The, the fact is that we, need, we don't just need better light bulbs. We need better laws. And if we're going to get those better laws and policies, then people actually have to take the time to call their MP, to call their MLA, to write a letter, to be active in the debate. Because you know who is active? It's the oil and gas industry. The studies are showing that they're lobbying six times a day. So six times a day, someone, some government official or politician takes a meeting from the oil and gas industry. How often do they hear from us so that they have the courage to put in place the changes that we need to be made so that so that everyone can buy a heat pump, so that they're accessible to people? It shouldn't just be wealthy people that can make the right choices. And I should say, this is something you know a lot about. You have... Uh 
uh, walk the walk when it comes to lobbying big companies and uh, governments to, to make changes. Um, I've got some calls I want to get in before the top of the hour. So let me ask you two quick questions uh, and, and maybe quick answers um, on very specific things. W- one is carbon offsets. Uh, you know, a lot of us have struggle with flying and and try to reduce it, but still end up flying and then have the option when we buy our ticket to do the carbon offsets. Uh, is that good enough? It's definitely not good enough. You know, there is no question that flying is going to be the greatest part of your personal footprint. Um, I struggle with it a lot because right now I'm I'm chairing the Global Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. So I'm meeting with countries all over the world. I'm leaving tomorrow for Dubai. And it's a, I have a terrible carbon footprint. But I, I actually can't do my job. I can't meet with those prime ministers and heads of state and talk to them about global policy unless I'm there. And... And But on a personal level, I definitely struggle with it. But sometimes you're right. I heard you say earlier, people live across the country mm-hmm. and they're your family. I call those love miles. Think <laughs> carefully about using those love miles yeah. because that is going to be your biggest footprint. And just to be really gut honest with you, I'm torn on the offset question mm-hmm. because so many studies have come out this year saying that they're just scandalous, that they're, they've, they've been double counting, that it's not true offsets. There are offsets. We're finding evidence now of human rights abuses where in order to sell the offsets, governments are moving indigenous people in in various countries in Africa and also in the Amazon off their traditional territories in order to sell it as a, a park or an offset. Mm-hmm. I there it's a it's not a field that's regulated right now, so it's very hard to know if you're getting a good offset or not. The best thing to do is to buy less, and it's to fly less. Mm-hmm. Um, but should you buy offsets if you know they're coming from a good place and you have faith in it and you're helping a community protect their forest? I mean, I, I, I guess so, um, but it's certainly not a, a silver bullet. It's always so nice to talk with you. I'm going to leave it there, uh, but I appreciate your expertise. I appreciate your candor, right? The fact that you are flying tomorrow. I'm flying tomorrow. I'm going to go visit my parents in New Brunswick, right? It's not something I do lightly. These are hard choices yeah, to make Yeah, they right are hard now. choices. And, uh, and, and I clicked on the carbon offset, but uh, I need to find out more about those. So as I say, thank you very much for Thanks coming. Thanks for out. having me. Zipporah Berman is the International Program Director for Stand Earth, a nonprofit environmental organization here in Vancouver. All right, coming up in a few minutes, we're going to change topics, another shopping-related topic. I'll tell you more about that in about five minutes' time. But I want to try to squeeze in two more calls, if I can, before the top of the hour. Uh, One from here in Vancouver, Deborah Bodner. Hi, Deborah. Hi. Um, I'm going to maybe just do this in a couple of minutes. I'm I'm sorry to give you short shrift, but I do want to get a couple of calls in. And and let me know, have, have you changed anything or many things when it comes to your shopping habits? Um. I have. I've tried to, mm-hmm. but I find it almost like, you know, hitting my head against a brick wall, is that um, they take out the, the, you know, the government, the economy people, they all say, or environmental people, they all say, you know, no, you can't use straws, plastic straws. Nope, you can't use plastic bags. But every single thing that I buy in any grocery store or pharmacy is packaged to the ninth. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's that, you know, they won't put my meat in a plastic bag, but they'll wrap it in styrofoam and plastic. So that's one of my big things. I really have an issue with the packaging. Yeah. I think so much of it goes into our landfills. I think many people would agree with you. And, and listen, maybe one more minute and I'll ask you, I, I noticed you, you said to our producers, you mentioned Facebook 
groups helpful in terms of reusing stuff? Quickly tell me about that. Yep. Um, well, in your in anybody's area, if you're on Facebook, they usually have a buy nothing site, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it is it's it's amazing. I mean, there's so many things that we can get from our neighbors. The simplest things, like I broke my ice cube trays, and I looked on buy nothing, and somebody was giving away ice cube trays. So things like that, I think we really need to start looking into, reusing, yep. recycling. Um, you know, I grew up in the early 60s. My parents, we were poor in Thunder Bay, mm-hmm. and they, we didn't waste anything, yep. even to the point where, like, I make rag rugs. So I go onto Facebook and ask people for their leftover sheets or pants or yep. materials that I can use. Yep. I, as I, opposed to buying new stuff. I'd like to make one more point, though. Okay. Is... Um, the fellow that was on about shopping local and using mm-hmm. e-bikes and things like that, and you don't you need your big F10 mm-hmm. trucks, um, that's well and good. And I live in Vancouver, you're in Toronto, whatever, they're in Toronto. But if you live in Thunder Bay yep. in the winter, there are no local shops where you can buy mm-hmm. fresh fruits and veg unless it's been shipped in, so you're paying more for it. Yep. And there's no way anybody in Thunder Bay is going to be riding around on an e-bike in January. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, no, this is, uh, so this is a really good point. So it really defies, you know, yep. on your environment and where you are. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, like I said, you can't ride an e-bike in Thunder Bay. So we <laughs> At least another not, well, not, not in the winter, that's for sure. Uh, no. Well, you know and what? I, one more, ha- one more I'll thing say, was, having said that, there are going to be people who are going to angrily get in touch with me now and say they ride right in the heart of winter, even in Thunder Bay with an e-bike. So there can be exceptions, but I hear what you're saying. You know what, Deborah? I'm sorry. I, I hate to do this, but I, I do have to, to move on. But thank you very much for calling. No worries. Let me go to some of the online uh, reaction as we close out this first hour. Tom Delahook uh, emailed us uh, from here in Vancouver. Most of us recognize climate change, but we don't recognize our personal responsibility. We should be looking at the real cost of everything we buy from the time it was raw material. Kevin, and uh, I'll try to pronounce this last name correctly, Leducer. Uh, Laduser um, got in touch with us via AirCheck. He's in Surrey, British Columbia. I don't give big gifts to adults or even family. Most gifts are now sent through Amazon or delivered to. Interesting, we heard kind of two views of uh, the delivery system. Is it more efficient than driving around? Probably. Is it not as good as going to your neighborhood store? Maybe. So interesting. Um, anyway, to finish up Kevin's uh, contact with us, I also try to wear secondhand clothing so I can wear the same thing over and over to help reduce my carbon footprint. And Anna Hooper, also via AirCheck and also in British Columbia, she's in Campbell River, says, I don't participate in Christmas gift giving. I may make a donation in someone's name, but I find Christmas consumerism the most wasteful holiday we have. All right, let's say goodbye now to our TV viewers on CBC News Network as we continue today's show live on CBC Radio and CBC Gem. Rosemary Barton Live is next on CBC News Network. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor. I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you're listening to Hour 2 of Cross Country Checkup. It's time now for our second topic on today's show. 
So a lot of people resented the move to self-checkout, feeling like they're told to do their own work. This week, CBC reported that some stores, including some individual Walmarts and Canadian Tires, have dropped self-checkouts. The theft is a big, big issue. You don't have the eyes on you like you would with a cashier. So our second topic today, are self-checkouts and receipt checks a mistake? What is your shoplifting story? Our number stays the same, one 888-416-8333. I do use self-checkout when it's available. I find it's quicker. A lot of times there's like, I don't know what cilantro is off by heart, so you got to type in the things. So now I'm taking forever. And yeah, it's like, can be a total pain in the butt. I work in retail and it's like, you can't believe what they steal. If they steal at the place that you have to go through a cashier. Could you imagine the theft that goes on when it's self-checking? Every time my colleague Sophia Harris does a story on those self-checkout machines, it gets a lot of reaction. Earlier this year, it was about the link between self-checkouts and shoplifting and the increased use of uh, receipt checks as you're walking out the store. A few days ago, she wrote a story about the places that are removing those self-checkout machines. Do you find them a faster way to pay or frustrating struggle with technology? And how do you feel about increased security at many stores? So our question this hour, are self-checkouts and receipt checks a mistake? What's your shoplifting story? And our number is one 888 We would especially like to hear from you if you work in retail or own a store or maybe you've had your own brush with shoplifting. And if you'd like to share comments or appear on the program, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. This is hour two of the program. So that CBC story that Sophia did uh, talked about those stores that were moving, uh, removing the self-checkout kiosks. And the operator of a Canadian tire in North Bay was quoted as saying that uh, he did it because he wanted to have better customer service, better connections with customers. But a report back in 2022 suggested that 23% of losses in retail stores could be due to theft or mistakes at self-checkout machines. So before we get to your calls, I want to speak to someone who can help us understand why some stores may be ditching self-checkout machines. David Ian Gray is a retail strategist with the firm Dig360. That's a retail advisory firm with clients across the country, including London Drugs, Lee Valley Tools, and Roots. He is in Port Moody, British Columbia. And Ian, you and I used to talk a lot when I did a news network show here out of CBC Vancouver. It is so nice to talk to you again. Welcome to the program. Yeah, good to see you again, Ian. Um, so if some retailers are, are having sort of second thoughts about the, the self-checkout machines, what do you think might be driving that? Uh, I think you sort of touched on it. It's uh, We can get into the customer experience and some of the b- debates, whether it's solving customer problems, but really what's driving this move is the incredible surge in uh, in theft across the board in retail with with the self-checkout area identified as a really vulnerable area. It's hard, though, to get, maybe it's different for you, but it's hard as a journalist to get data from, from the retail industry when it comes to this. We asked the Retail Council of Canada how much shoplifting is happening as a result of self-checkout machines, and here's part of a statement that we got from a spokesperson. It's difficult, says this statement, to get an accurate picture because so, mo- so much of it goes unreported. Theft is often thought of as a victimless crime, but it's not. It costs Canadian retailers billions of dollars a year. Shoplifting has increased across all categories, including food, apparel, and footwear 
merchandise. Okay, that's the statement. You're the uh, the analyst and, and advisor. W- what can you tell us about the magnitude of this problem? Uh, Canada in particular, um, retailers here, for whatever reason, I've been doing this a long time, are uh, very reluctant to share data of any kind publicly compared to the UK or US. So when we're getting our data right now, trying to quantify this, it tends to be out of those two countries. But what I can say is... Um, the fact that CEOs are making this a priority right now just indicates to me that uh, this is far beyond what would be a normal year-to-year petty theft issue that would always happen in retail. There's something that's very much, um, uh, you know, a, a surge in it. And what I'm hearing is it's moved from from people just putting something in their pocket for whatever reason into uh, organized crime and the t- the area is called organized retail crime now as a subject area. Yeah. And and for the people who are listening to the program, I should point out, you know, we're kind of dealing with two topics this hour and there's an overlap. So we're talking about yeah. self-checkout machines and a few stores that are actually removing them. We're talking about shoplifting and then there's a combination where those two are connected because it appears a lot of people try to take advantage of the self-checkout to uh, to sh- steal stuff. So that's why we have, we're toggling between these two topics because there is a, a commonality. And we're speaking to David Ian Gray, retail analyst with the firm Dig360. Our question, were self-checkouts a mistake? Are they a mistake? What's your shoplifting story? And our number is one 888 You can also text comments or questions at 226-758-8924. So David, up until now, we've been talking about shoplifting when it comes to self-checkout. What about the customer experience? Because that's the thing I hear uh, from a lot of people is, is that they, they, they don't like it, quite frankly. Um, but, but, you know, give us the analyst view of uh, the correlation between having those self-checkout machines and the connection between the retailer and the customer. Well, if I'm doing a nerdy consulting thing here, there'd be sort of one of those Venn diagrams, you know, three circles overlapping and and they'd be distinct but overlapping. And that's customer experience is a big part of this. There's the shoplifting and then there's the the retailer economics. The re, You know, at the end of the day, as much as the retailers are talking about the customers, they actually need to be financially healthy in their own business. And so the advent of uh, self-checkout was really much about finding ways to be more efficient in the operations in store, especially the bigger, not not really the, you know, the clothing boutiques, but we're talking about the big, big merchants out there, the big box and the grocery sector was really where it started. And a lot of that was around labor costs that were rising and so on. Uh, But there is an overlay with customer experience. So that's a more complicated story because I think as your callers will probably feed back in, uh, where we are at today is we've got probably some people that really love self-checkout. They don't want to see it go. They prefer that in all cases over a cashier. And you probably have another pocket of people that always want the cashier. They hate self-checkout. And then there's a whole sea of people in between who case by case will use one or the other. Um, and, you know, from a customer experience point of view, there's pros and cons. On the upside is... Uh, none of us like when there's suddenly a big lineup at the cash when we're in a hurry to get home. And maybe we've only got like four items, you know? Mm-hmm. So the the self-checkout became a nice alternative where you can just go tap, 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 and out you go. The downside is, like we know with most technology, 
are the times it doesn't work. And there are times that doesn't work. And uh, in your lead in, you had a few examples around, you know, trying to key in the code mm-hmm. for a vegetable or whatever. And when it doesn't work, now you're bottlenecked, right? So mm-hmm. that's a big frustration. I think I think the answer where we're seeing it kind of nicely done is where you've got still a dominant set of cashiers, but you've got a little outlet with some self-checkout. But you're, it's very much going to be case by case whether people like this thing or not. Yeah, I, I I have so many examples from my personal life, but I will spare both you and our listeners that now because we want to hear from them. But David, like I said, a real pleasure uh, chatting with you. Always like uh, hearing your perspective on retail. Great to be on. Thank you. David Ian Gray, retail strategist with the firm Dig360, and we reached him in Port Moody, British Columbia. Our question in this hour, are self-checkouts and receipt checks, so where they take a look at your receipt before you leave the store, have they been a mistake by retailers? And to the extent that all of this is related to an increase in shoplifting, maybe that has touched you as securities become more vigilant. What is your shoplifting story? And our number on cross-country checkup, as always, is one 416 8333 Kim Baldwin is calling us from Hamilton. Hi, Kim. Hi, how are you, Ian? Good. I, the first line from the producer here intrigues me because it says, Kim, you are both a former cashier, though you prefer self-checkout. Explain that for us. Well, I mean, it's easier for me as a former cashier mm-hmm. to go through the self-checkout. I just grab the wand, scan everything in the, in the cart, and off I go. Mm-hmm. And I know still, to, even though it's been, you know, 10 years, I still remember some of the vegetable and fruit codes wow. for the ones I buy all the time. Wow. Um, so it's really super easy for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I actually prefer self-checkout. And I just want to interrupt and just say, I apologize for the sound of my voice. I'm just getting over a very bad cold. Yeah, no apology needed at all. But I, I'm glad to hear that it's not anything worse than that. So thank you for saying me that. Too. You know, Kim, I, I actually, let me just ask you kind of an unrelated question. But I'm always intrigued when I go to the grocery store and when I go through, like, you know, have a clerk actually bring things in, how they like they like 16 different kinds of rolls and they seem to be able to look at mine and immediately, I think I'm supposed to put the number on the twist tie, but I often don't. They instantly right. know those numbers. Like you must've had, remember the codes? you must've had hundreds of codes stored in your head, eh? Exactly. Well, to be honest with you, a whole week of my initial training mm-hmm. was wandering around the store, writing down codes for all of the vegetables, all of the fruits, all of the rolls, putting it in a notebook and memorizing. Hmm. And to be honest with you, if you do it eight hours a day, it's going to take you a week. And yeah. you've got the codes down. Yeah, it's almost like learning a language. It is learning a language, right? Except it's numbers it and, and not words. I still remember after so many years, it constantly amazes me. I can't remember what I ate for breakfast, <laughs> but I can remember the code for Honeycrisp apples. You know? <laughs> That's great. Listen, Kim, before I let you go, um, so you're a former cashier who prefers self-checkouts, but there's another twist here, too. Uh, your mother yeah. is, is your mother's a little older, um, and, uh, and, and she prefers to go to the cashier, but, but that is not always a good experience for her. Well, unfortunately, um, and I do have this dual perspective, so I'm sort of torn. My elderly mother, I'm the primary caregiver, and... She can walk, so her daily excitement is to walk around the store. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So she'll go in and she'll buy, you know, a few odds and ends, and she will always, always choose the cashier. However, at our local store, since they've drastically increased the self-checkout numbers, they have one or maybe two cashiers on at any given time. So anybody that prefers to use the cashier is in that line, Mm -hmm. and it can be quite long. And due to my mother's age, she really can't wait in line for 20 minutes, Yeah, you know? Um, So then she is forced to use the self-checkout, which she doesn't know how to do, so she has to get somebody to help her. Mm -hmm. So now she is to the point where she will no longer go into the store and get that daily exercise and get that socialization because she can no longer physically do it. And they're just isn't enough support. So I have to say, just as the gentleman prior to me stated, it's going to be a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. But people need to have access to both. All right. Because Kim, when I was a cashier, I'm sorry. Yep. Yep. it was the senior citizens and the single gentleman who couldn't find something in an aisle or some poor mother with four children that's got a cart you know, filled to the brim. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that need a professional cashier. If you're coming in for three things in a bag of milk, you can do that yourself. Yep. You know? Kim, thank you very much, and I hope your cold uh, feels a little bit better soon. So much, Ian. I, I have to say, I absolutely love the show and absolutely listen every week. Well, we appreciate that very much. Thank you. Thank You're you. listening to Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. And our question this hour, are self-checkouts and receipt checks a mistake? Uh, what's your shoplifting story? And the reason I ask that is because, as I've mentioned a few times already in this hour, uh, there appears to be a significant increase in theft at places, at stores that have brought in the self-checkouts. And with the increase in thefts comes an increase in security and people asking to see your receipts and and that sort of thing. Our next guest is a, a former loss prevention officer in the United States. For decades, he worked in department stores trying to reduce thefts of jewelry, designer clothes, perfumes, and much more. Now, Reed Hayes is a research scientist and co-director of the loss prevention research team at the University of Florida. And we've reached him in Gainesville, Florida. Hi, Reed. Well, good evening, and how are you? I'm I'm doing really well. Thank you very much for for taking our call. So, from your perspective, as a, as a former loss prevention officer who literally would walk the aisles in stores, um, what were some of the telltale signs that uh, th- that person, sort of on the other end of the aisle, is a likely shoplifter? Sure. I mean, then and now. Um, it's been behaviorally based. You know, it's not what somebody looks like or where they're from. It's what they're doing and saying. It's always behavior. And so, you know, one thing you can do is pretty clearly defend the discriminate between buying or just say shopping and, and behaviors and those where you're actually stealing, particularly concealing items. Right. So, you know, an individual would walk up to a fixture and particularly a display fixture of known high loss items. And the retailers are very good about, uh, tracking down to the item level, not just the type and category or even brand, uh, what they're losing. So if you've got an individual that walks up, they're standing unusually close to the fixture. They seem to be looking around for to see if there are people or cameras watching um, rather than looking at the item. Is this the price, the quality, the quantity that, that I want, the brand? 
Um, and they're, instead, they're paying attention. At the same time, their hands are down instead of up holding the item. They're probably removing packaging or a protective device or concealing it, rolling it up, breaking hangers, things like that, depending on the merchandise type. Um, and, and they may even be unusually angled, too, again, to conceal the item. So you would look for these cues in clusters that seem to say, okay, this looks like this individual is stealing this. We also looked at some of the psychological reactions. When people are under stress, they might flush, they might yawn and scratch and do certain things, um, stretch and so on. Mm -hmm. So you're looking for those cues that they're stealing, concealing, removing, rather than shopping, looking, at the same time dealing on, uh, really subconsciously or unconsciously with the stress they're experiencing. All of that makes a lot of sense, and it is supported by your many years of experience. But I assume, Reed, that sometimes you must have got it, gotten it wrong. In my case, I'm sure everybody does, but I'm mm -hmm. sure in my case, yes. Now, yeah. what we did was we also, there were always checks. We had five steps. That continues today. You had to see the individual approach that uh, display fixture, that item. You had to see them actually select it and remove the item from the fixture. You had to see them then conceal the item or open carry it, uh, had to pass the last point of sale without paying for it. And then you still have a decision point. But that way it reduced the chance for error. Um, I myself never stopped somebody that didn't have stolen goods. But wow. that's wow. one powerful way to do that. Yeah, we're here speaking with Reed Hayes, co-director of the Loss Prevention Research Team at the University of Florida. Our question this hour, were self-checkouts a mistake? And given that self-checkouts are kind of linked to an increase in shoplifting, do you have a shoplifting story, uh, perhaps being stopped? And how did that work out? You can call us at 1-888-416-8333 or text us at 226 758 8924. Reed, we've been hearing that shoplifting has increased over the past few years, uh, at least in Canada. Um, from the perspective of someone who used to work in loss prevention and now studies it, what sort of trends have you noticed? Well, I mean, one thing we've got, we're working, our research team, including, by the way, a Trinidadian uh, uh, native, um, mm -hmm. we're working on in, uh, data that we get directly from the retailers. We, we have 94 retail corporations, including several that are uh, north of the border in Canada uh, and other U.S. retailers that are, have stores up there as well. But the data that they're showing us is anywhere between, they're anywhere between double-digit and triple-digit increases in theft levels, uh, loss levels in certain items they didn't used to experience in them. Let's think Dove bar soap, for example. Hmm. Um, but also a double or triple, depending on the area, uh, increase in aggression and violence, or or at least intimidation. Mm -hmm. And and what about the self-checkout machines? Have you seen any correlation between that and an increase in shoplifting? Well, you know, that's an interesting dynamic um, because it's a form of theft, clearly, if somebody intentionally mm -hmm. uh, removes an item from a store uh, without permission. And uh, whether you act like you're ringing it up at the register uh, at the self-checkout or you just conceal it or otherwise walk or run out with it. Um, so I think what's happened is you've seen a shift 
in many places to just using a self-checkout. It, there's a possibility, and this is something we're, that's under review right now through research data, looking at who is being detained, what they're being detained for, and reviewing a lot of video footage to see what's really going on, um, and, and using RFID tags in some cases as well, that you might see people that traditionally did not conceal and walk out with items that might intentionally not ring up those items mm-hmm. at the point of sale. Reed, really nice uh, talking to you. Thank you very much for taking our call. My pleasure. Reed Hayes, co-director of the loss prevention team at the University of Florida. We reached him in Gainesville, Florida. And in a few minutes, I'll talk to Dr. Mary Swingle, a professor who specializes in the psychology of stealing. And we'd love to hear from you. What are your shoplifting stories? How do you feel about self-checkouts? That is one of our questions. Are self-checkouts and receipt checks a mistake? What is your shoplifting story? And our number is 1-888-416-8333. You can also go to cbc.ca slash aircheck and let us know what you're thinking. Peter Boyd has called us from Warren, Ontario. Hi, Peter. Hi, how are you, Ian? Good, good. What's your experience when it comes to self-checkouts and receipt checks and all the stuff we're talking about? I've never used a self-checkout in my life. I never will use a self-checkout. I think uh, there's been a lot of talk about theft and stuff like that, and my wife works in a grocery store uh, for Loblaws, and they've noticed a big rise in theft. Hmm. Uh, But that's not the main reason I won't use uh, a self-checkout. Basically, I believe that it takes away jobs, Mm -hmm. and it's taking away jobs from lower-income earners. Our society needs lower-income jobs. It just so happens one's in the grocery store. Uh, So you're going to, you know, the more and more self-checkouts that you have, the less and less cashiers you need. Mm -hmm. And I believe that it's important to our society, especially nowadays with inflation where it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe that uh, we need as many people working as uh, we can per household just to survive. And I think that uh, cashiers' jobs are very, very important. Yeah. Um, and I just, I, I refuse to go through a self-checkout. As far as them checking your receipt at the door, I don't have an issue with that. Mm-hmm. I've never stolen anything. And uh, I'm not worried about uh, having my receipt checked. I think it's actually good for the employer to do that. Mm-hmm. But as far as self-checkouts, I absolutely do not agree with them. Peter Boyd, thank you very much for calling us. You're very welcome. Let's take a look at some of the online uh, comments that we're getting. We got a text from Adele Farrow, and I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, Adele. She is in uh, Nepean, Ontario. Self-checkouts are a problem for me because I'm vision impaired. If self-checkouts became the rule, then I can't shop at stores in person. Last year, I picked up a few items in a grocery store. It became apparent there was no live cashier available. I walked out. A manager came running after me and checked my items out for me. He did so with very ill grace. I don't deserve that kind of treatment. Jack Shore emailed us. He's in Calgary. I love self-checkout. I get to arrange items in my own bags at a reasonable pace. I get to verify that sale prices or discounts match what I am expecting. And Marie DeQuano, or DeQuano, via AirCheck from Richmond Hill, Ontario, says, I don't like self-serve checkouts. I prefer a cashier. I also think self-serve checkouts are not necessary. People need jobs, echoing the call we just had. Get rid of self-service checkouts and hire people for cashier 
positions. You are listening to Cross Country Checkup. We are live from Vancouver across the CBC Radio Network and other CBC platforms. And we're asking whether you like or don't like self-checkouts, the receipt checks. And uh, as shoplifting rises, sometimes because of the self-checkouts, do you have a shoplifting story? David Chambers is calling us from London, Ontario. Hi, David. Hello. You have an intriguing story when it comes to the whole self-checkout system, and uh, it involves uh, a a patent. Uh, Describe that for us. Well, I was asked, uh, I think it was Heritage Weekend, which is in February. We were going ice fishing with some of my co-workers up in Georgian Bay. Mm -hmm. And I had somebody from our library systems division come and see me before I left and they said, can you figure out how people can check out their own books in the library, but we can still maintain security. So this was years ago, I guess. Oh, it was back in 87, I guess it was. Okay. And that's when the patent issued was 88, I think. Uh, but uh, this was for books in libraries, and mm-hmm. uh, the reason being was computers were coming into libraries, and they didn't want to get rid of staff. They wanted the staff to do more important things mm-hmm. than check out books for people. But, of course, books are not like things in the grocery store. They're no longer in print, so they're, you can't even assess the value to them because you can't replace them if they're stolen. Mm-hmm. And so the security level, I actually raised the security level, according to uh, the marketing people, uh, because when the articles were being checked out by the uh, library patron, uh, there was more than a single check done on the article, Mm -hmm. uh, plus the fact that there were devices that were hidden in the articles that could be desensitized so the alarm didn't sound if you left the library with them. Yeah, so let me just back up for a second, David. Mm-hmm. So um, so on your way with some friends to go ice fishing in 1987, mm-hmm. one of them says, hey, we need a better system for uh, dealing with checkout of library mm-hmm. books. And, and you're the person who, who came up with that? Yeah. Yeah, and it basically put 3M as number one in the world in library technology for mm-hmm. uh, processing books. Yeah. Now, we didn't make the circulation systems. Uh, some other prominent Canadian companies did, one in Toronto, one in Montreal, another in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. But it was a global market, and it was Canadian, and uh, which was kind of neat. Hmm. So all I was doing was a terminal that had to talk to their networks. And... and uh, and so, but I had to figure out, I had to think like a thief mm-hmm. and figure out how to protect the articles. So uh, I actually measured the thickness of the book because mm. a, a crook will take a, a, a cheap book, which is typically thin, and uh, read the barcode on it and then stick the expensive book he wants to steal onto the terminal. Yeah. But of course, the thickness wouldn't match. Yeah. The expensive book would have a strip in it that could be desensitized, but the terminal wouldn't see a strip because the cheap book doesn't have one. Mm -hmm. But it would see a strip on the expensive book they're trying to steal. So I say, that book isn't supposed to have a strip. I'm seeing a strip. The thickness doesn't match. Then you could do things like the optical signature, the front cover of the book. So so what I wrote in the patent was... Uh, multiple attributes of the article being processed are checked. Mm-hmm. So in retail, when they didn't want to pay for royalties for the patent, retail only checks one attribute of the product. And mm. so they have lesser security Yeah, in doing that. 
but that was their way of not having to pay patents, uh, patent fees. Yeah, I guess the thing that they check is uh, is the weight, right? And so I've run into that problem at the self-checkout. Yeah, I, where, I didn't even want to say that. But, yeah. uh, and I don't want high school students going in and testing the thing. But Yeah, but you know what? You discover pretty quickly because on, on a lot of them, you get a message saying that, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, like you put it down and that doesn't match. And the only thing mm-hmm. clearly that they've checked is the weight. So even, yeah, so the question is, how do you get around it? And like yeah. you can go into a food store and buy 10 pounds of hamburger, come back the next day with the barcode off it and stick it on 10 pounds of steak. Yeah. But um, not that not that either one of us are not that either one of us is advocating that. So there you no, go. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it and and if they if, if they've advanced their barcoding systems once a barcode on an article like a package of steak is is gone through the system then uh it won't go through again. Yeah. I'll bet it, I'll so bet they have to get yeah. sophisticated there but they can because yep. we're so electronic these days. So artificial Absolutely. intelligence is coming. People who say I won't shop at a store that has automatic checkout eventually it's going to be robots at mm-hmm. the checkouts. Well, David, I don't know. I don't know whether to thank you or to uh, you know rue well, the fact the that you, the world is the that, future and, yep. and you can't stop this yep. stuff. Anyway, but, congratulations yeah. on on having the patent that that and yeah. and transforming the way that we take at the very least books out of libraries and well, and well, do self checkout. Are still being made by the yep. company, but. Uh, they sold off the library business, but when you go to the airport and stick your your passport into a terminal, mm-hmm. uh, that's the terminal, same terminal in the nice. check in mode. Nice. And when you return to the country, same thing. You stick your passport in, do your declaration. Cool. But all the time you're doing that, they're looking at your face, they're mm-hmm. comparing your face to what's on your passport, and they're comparing your expressions as you say, "I have no alcohol." <laughs> Yeah. So it's getting more and more sophisticated. And so these people say, I don't use the check, self-checkout. You do if you go to the airport. All you right. don't have a choice. <laughs> Thank you very much for calling. Appreciate it. Slowly. Uh, this is... Dealing with a person. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, thank you. Oh. We're live here on Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing. And we have half an hour left to talk about self-checkouts, receipt checks, and shoplifting, because those self-checkout uh, kiosks have either allowed or encouraged uh, an increase, a significant increase for some stores when it comes to shoplifting. So our next caller, I should mention a couple of things about him. First of all, he's uh, going by the name Ian, weirdly. And I say weirdly because we're not using his actual name because he's called in to say he is an avid shoplifter. So, uh, Ian, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. And uh, so why are you an avid shoplifter? Uh, well, it started when I was on welfare and didn't have money for food. So it just became, it was kind of a necessi- uh, necessity. And uh, I'm more secure now financially, but uh, I started shoplifting for other people I know that aren't so financially secure just to buy, get them meat and cheese and other expensive items. And uh, self-checkout makes it really easy. Mm-hmm. And and so mm-hmm. makes it easy in what way? Uh, well, usually you just don't have to scan the items and nobody's paying attention. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never got caught and I've gone out with, I usually just buy a few items uh, and then don't scan the rest of the items and just leave. Like I've gotten away with like, I go to several grocery stores, all with stuff, checkouts and spend about $40 and got about $200 worth of groceries that... I distribute to people that can't afford groceries. 
So I'm not clear though on why it's easier to kind of just put something in a bag or, you know, at the self-checkout than it would have been just to put it, you know, slip it into a bag when nobody's looking um, in the old days when they were just regular checkout people, but, you know, you could still shoplift then. What, what, why is it easier now? Because you can just take all your items to the checkout mm-hmm. and just not scan the items. Sometimes I just put them on the ground uh, or I'll just pretend to scan them and not scan them. And like big items that you can't fit in your pocket, like a, you know, a big value pack of hamburger or a ham or something you can't stick in your pocket. Like a lot of stuff that uh, poor people can't afford. Uh, it's, it's hard to, like toilet paper, for example. You can just put toilet paper, you can go up to the self-checkout, put the toilet paper on the ground, check out your other items, not even acknowledge the toilet paper is there and just pick it up and walk out with it. Hmm. Um, and uh, when I do self-checkout, I mean, there at the very least is somebody from the store who's kind of keeping an eye on what everybody does. I often wonder if they can see um, what's being checked out so they can kind of compare it to, you know, what I've been doing there. Uh, and then other times they won't only be somebody from the staff, but also somebody who is uh, like a, a security guard. Like, And, and those people have not... Uh, have not uh, caught you, obviously. I've never had an issue. Like, I do pay attention, but usually I wait till the cashier. Usually there's one Usually there's one cashier there, and they're usually mm-hmm. overworked. They're trying to help 12 people at once, so they don't have time to keep track of everyone, and uh, I guess I take advantage of that. Um, I just, I'm going to ask this question just kind of in a straightforward way. Why, why are you calling in? Why, why did you want to tell your story? Uh, because I feel like the, the stories everyone wants to call in is about them being good, and I just want to tell a story about somebody being bad and taking advantage of the system. But are, are you honest? Are you being honest about it? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason we put your call on the air is that, uh, you know, our producers kind of, you know, listen to all the people who call in, make an assessment about whether they're credible or not, um, and uh, and feel you are, and and we just thought it would be an interesting point of view to, to listen to. We're certainly not advocating what you're doing. And in fact, the question... I'm not advocating either. I'm not going to tell you like too many tricks of what I do no. for that very reason, but... No, but, but, but here's the thing, right? And I got to ask this question, right? And I'm sure you're expecting it. And it's about the morality of it. Like you're, you're stealing stuff and retailers will say that people, I mean, they're right. The people who steal, um, it's a cost that eventually gets passed on to all of us. And so, you know, I'm sure there are many listeners who are kind of shaking their heads saying, you should not be stealing, especially, uh, you know, valuable, you know, expensive cuts of meat, uh, whatever the motive. Uh, what do you say to them? Uh, well, I guess I do it out of necessity. And I guess I, Galen Weston has billions of dollars. And yes, he may pass on the, those things to consumers, Uh I guess I don't feel bad about it because I, I'm stealing because, for people that actually need to eat. And like the food banks don't provide very good sustenance. They don't, you don't get anything like cheese or I'm not saying expensive cuts of meat. I didn't say that. I said, I said hamburger. Uh, okay. But uh, like, like, yeah, I, I, I do know there's a moral quandary there and I do feel bad about it sometimes, but I also feel it's nece- it's a necessity sometimes. Yeah, you know what? I, I yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm just saying the self checkouts just make it really easy. Yeah, I I 
think one of the good things about this show is we hear all kinds of different points of view and uh, there's no reason for you and I to debate the morality of it because even you acknowledge the the, um, nuances there and I'll just let uh, listeners kind of make up their own minds about how they feel about your approach. But uh, I certainly do appreciate you calling in to talk to us. Okay, thank you very much. All right, let's go uh, from... Well, actually, their second call is also from London, Ontario, but I feel like it's going to be a different kind of call. Uh, Barbara Jones is on the phone. Hi, Barbara. Hi. Um, so what do you think of our topic? Self-checkouts, receipt checks, shoplifting? What would you like to talk about? Well, I I, I get what, what this the former caller was, was doing, and I, I agree. I mean, it is still theft, and there's, there is a morality issue there. But there's also a morality issue in terms of how do we look after folks in our society and how do we treat people um, when they're out doing their grocery shopping for things that they actually need. And what I've observed is that getting in and out of stores, um, you know, now there are all these um, gates and uh, fencing and areas where, that you have to pass through. And if you go through one of those gates the wrong way, like literally um, sirens or alarms go off. And some of them are, the sound of them is pretty distressing. Mm-hmm. And in, in it, the assumption is kind of, well, there are so many criminals out there that, you know, we need to do this. And um, I, one, I wonder what that costs. Them? Does it actually recover the cost of it? And two, when stores are making these kinds of profits that we're hearing about, um, and prices are going up, and people can afford less and less to pay for their groceries, I get why they would would take things. So there's there's a for me there's a social justice thing that's happening or not happening there. And the other thing is that. I literally was in a store and I was coming in and there was this woman there and she was trying to figure out how to get her son to the washroom. And she went through the gate the wrong way and the alarms went off. And I'm just thinking, really, do we, is that how we want to be treating each other? I mean, it just, I just, I just find it kind of offensive that, you know, in, at a time where grocery stores are making record profits, um, now all of a sudden they're, you know, they're saying they're concerned about shoplifting. But you know, Barbara... It hurting the bottom line. I know, you know, it is not a victimless crime. However, um, <clears throat> it just, it just, it seems unnecessary. Yeah. So I, I've done a little bit of research on, on shoplifting at stores and, uh, and, and it does appear that uh, a lot of stores are getting hit hard, lots of costs, and, uh, and, and there are at times... Um, I mean, the, the retailers say an organized crime element to some of the yeah, thefts. Yeah, that wasn't something that I was aware of. So yeah. I get, you know, that because they're probably reselling it mm-hmm. and making their profit. Yeah. So, I mean, it's and, and apparently, uh, you know, some retailers are reporting that the amount of shoplifting has, has, has increased by quite a bit. And it's not all about, uh, you know, need. So how, how do we figure all this out, Barbara? Like, how do we balance, uh, you know, so you, you talk about the social social justice component of that. So let's put that aside for a moment. I mean, some people might even debate that, but l- let's agree that, you know, there's some compelling reasons for somebody who's who's not able to eat to get something to eat and may have to break some rules to do it. But but what about all the other people who aren't driven by that kind of need? How how should stores deal with that? Um I don't know that it's 
going to be just up to the stores. I think mm-hmm. if stores could keep their prices at um, a reasonable level of increase, like I noticed that since um, the the government has said, well, you know, we're going to bring in legislation and you're going to have to keep your, your prices down, that um, in some of those, some of the big chains, um, all of the, when that announcement came out, and it may be just coincidental, um, but I noticed that the price of certain items went up dramatically, like the next week, mm. um, 20, 25%, you know, on, on some things. Yeah. But to go back to your question about how do we deal with this, well, I think part of it is if, if we know that people can meet their needs, then, um, then we can go after the people who are, you know, organizing um, criminal activity. And for me, the, the answer for that and, and many of the problems that we're faced with these days is some kind of a basic income guarantee. Yeah. But I know that's another whole topic. It is. And it's a topic we're going to do on the show for sure at some point, uh, And I'm sure it's been done in the past. Um, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is even if somebody's detained for shoplifting, there's still a lot of steps to go through. And, uh, and if somebody, you know, is truly in a state of need, um, the case against them may not proceed, right? So it, it's it, like there's just so many different steps in this. But Barbara, as always, appreciate uh, the fact that you've called in and you're so candid and, uh, and it's interesting to hear your perspective. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Great We're, show. Yeah, thank you. We're live here on uh, on Cross Country Checkup. And our question this hour, are self-checkouts and receipt checks a mistake? And what is your shoplifting story? Well, once again, perfect segue from a caller to an expert who's here in the studio. Uh, doctor, and, and I, I listen to you pronounce your first name, but I keep feeling I'm going to mispronounce it. So how do you pronounce your first name? Mari. Mari. Okay, Dr. Mari Swingle, a registered psychologist. And you are a professor as well. No. Oh, Okay. So you're just a registered psychologist. I'm just a registered okay, psychologist. Okay, all right. Yeah. Uh, she's Big a, researcher, though. That's right. She's <laughs> with me in our Vancouver studio. How are you? I'm well. Yourself? Good, good. Well, uh, hopefully you heard a little bit of that call. I did, And yes. so lots of different reasons why people will uh, shoplift, uh, and mm-hmm. this is something you've studied. What, what are some of those reasons? Yeah, well, I mean, everybody, I think, is fairly aware of what I call the the need and greed. Mm-hmm. So need, obviously, um, you know, somebody's hungry, they steal a loaf of bread. Um, the greed is just kind of, you know, somebody, hey, I want that chocolate bar, I want that lipstick, that pair of shoes. Um, and the morality, of course, we all kind of plunk on that one. Um, there's a third one that's fairly common as well, um, most typically in adolescence, um, and that's exploring deviance, so essentially exploring boundaries. So those are the three most common ones, um, and those are the ones that I'd say most of people are aware of, and they battle, again, right and wrong, acceptance, etc. But there's another level, um, and the, here we're going literally into deeper levels of psychology, mm-hmm. um, wherein it has to do with arousal templates, stress tolerance, impulse control. Um, and if you'd like, I can expand either on the latter or some of the things we're more familiar with. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about any of those, but, but on that fourth one, the fourth category, like I just think of a few high-profile cases over the years of Mm -hmm. uh, politicians, for example, who stole things and clearly didn't need them. um, And it seemed kind of confusing. And as they, because they were politicians, it became public, as they explained why they did it, they either 
didn't really want to disclose the reason or they didn't fully understand the reason, but I kind of feel it might have fallen into that fourth category. So let's talk a bit more about that. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, it's not as uncommon uh, as one would feel. And you hit the nail on the head when people actually steal things that they don't need and actually don't have any desire for. So that's where it is a a compulsive action. Uh, And almost always it has to do with anxiety. Um, And uh, as I said, the arousal template. And this is an activity. um, We can kind of throw it into uh, addiction as as well, that you just do something uh, to uh, relieve that anxiety temporarily. Um, And then there's a compulsive nature and you you kind of ride the arousal. You know, arousal comes up um, with thinking about it peaks uh, with uh, taking an item and then comes down. Um, I don't know whether we want to slide over into gambling, but it's a perfect example. A lot of people don't know that the arousal of the loss is actually higher than the arousal of the win. Hmm. Um, And that's what we're talking about in terms of the uh, arousal of of shoplifting. Yeah. So, I mean, the other thing that's analogous, I guess, with a bunch of things, but I think gambling with shoplifting in that fourth category Mm -hmm. is at first... First of all, if we aren't motivated to achieve that sense of arousal in that uh, mm-hmm. cat, in that context, it's hard for us to understand, right? Yes. It's hard. It's hard for me to understand going into a store and feeling this kind of compulsion and then this reward in my brain for mm-hmm. slipping something into my pocket. Um, and then the second part I wonder about is just how great a compulsion is it? Is it? I mean, is it an addiction? Mm-hmm. Good question. Um, I'm going to get sciencey on you. That's okay. <laughs> okay. That's... Yeah, we've actually looked into this, and there are two regions in the um, in the brain that are complicit. Um, so one, we look up in the frontal lobes, the balance of the frontal lobes, uh, which can also tell us a little bit about depression. Uh, but there's a region of the brain called the anterior cingulate, and uh, within my discipline, we joke we call it a hot cingulate. Um, <laughs> but it's lack of impulse control. Okay, Um, so what we do find with compulsive shoplifters, this part of the brain is really, really uh, hyperactive. Uh, There's a second region of the brain in the occiput. Uh, Again, when we're talking about the electricity that the brain produces, there's far too much fast electricity in a region that should be governed by slow activity. And here we're talking again about the inability to quiet, very poor stress tolerance, Um, and different forms of addiction. Compulsive shoplifting is a behavioral addiction. Of the four categories you mentioned, and you started with people who need, people who are greedy. What was the third category? Deviance. Deviance. Exploration. Deviance. Yeah, Exploring, like just yeah. kind of pushing those boundaries. Yeah. And often adolescence, as you point out. And now this yeah. fourth one, clearly mm-hmm. the one most interesting to me, like to mm-hmm. hear you describe it and talk about it. Um, any idea of like the of the global percentage of of shoplifting, how many fall into these various categories? That's a tough one. Uh, Again, as a practicing clinical psychologist, guess which category I see all the (laughs) time, right? That's right, of course, yeah. Yeah. So it's 100% our category (laughs) four, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, I also work with the the deviance component, but that's, you know, getting the family and understanding, realizing, you know, is this peer pressure? Is this, oh, another category is attention-seeking. And again, that can... The whole uh, age gambit, all socioeconomic. Really? Because I could see that with a 15-year-old, but you mean there could be a 45-year-old yeah. who also shoplifts to because they're attention-seeking? Yeah, it can oh. also be indirectly a cry for help. Yeah. Um, 
I, I mean, I could keep on talking to you, but I've got 13 <laughs> minutes before the show signs off and okay. a whole bunch of calls. Mm-hmm. But it's really nice having listening to you, but also having you in the studio. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Dr. Swingle is a registered psychologist, not a professor, but that's just fine. <laughs> and thank you very much for coming in. All right. Our uh, question here is our self-checkouts and receipt checks a mistake. What is your shoplifting story? Uh, we're live here on Cross Country Checkup. And let's go to Oxford Mills, Ontario. And Lynn Kennedy is uh, on the line. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? Good. Uh, you can, you know, we're three different things we're talking about here, self-checkouts, receipt checks, and shoplifting. You can talk about any of those. Which which would you like to jump in on? Um, I think the shoplifting and the self-checkout together. Um, mm-hmm. My, I was telling your screener that my son works at um, the local Walmart, mm-hmm. and he's been there for quite a while now. And um, I was astounded at the things that people were trying to steal, for one thing. Um, and also, people are aware of where the the security cameras are. It's a big store. Mm-hmm. And um, so they'll just rip open packages and stuff, you know, whether it's underwear, socks, Pokemon cards, Yu-Gi-Oh cards. Um, someone tried to leave with a television, a giant screen television. And she said her husband was outside with the receipt, which wouldn't happen because they would have had to go through the checkout. Wow. Um, yeah, there's a lot of really kind of... Uh, brazen. brazen. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he finds packaging all over the store because he is on the floor. And mm. um, uh, your caller there who used to work in the grocery or as was a cashier, I was a cashier for many years with a grocery store. And, um, I mean, you had to come through the cash, but you also had floor walkers, which I don't think stores do that anymore. You know, kind of the mystery shopper type person. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, I know I work in retail sector as well, and we aren't allowed to pursue the person. We can make note of characteristics. We have cameras in our store as well. Um, much more, many more cameras than what I think my son's Walmart has. But um, I don't think the problem is self-checkout. Maybe it is when people are stuffing things in their bodies or whatever, or they're mm-hmm. not scanning things. But I go through Canadian Tire. I go through Walmart here. I go through in Kempville and I go through um, Food Basics. And there's always someone there watching. And yeah. um, I... I don't see how it's possible unless the place is just hopping and um, I don't know how you do it truthfully, but I don't steal. So I don't know. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's always somebody with their eye on you. They're just standing there watching. I certainly so, feel like when I go through self-checkout that I'm being watched like a hawk, like I, yeah. you know, but then again, you know, they're very good, uh, uh, you know, thieves out there uh, and figure out a way to, you know, sleight of hand, I guess, to distract and, and to put things in. And if Ian, uh, the caller who's the last name yeah. we're not using, but not was, this Ian, but if he's telling you know. the truth, uh, you know, he says that he's able to... Uh, to do it uh, very easily, doesn't get detected and does it all the time. So um, interesting. Well, I think the stores, really, I think the security cameras really don't catch every spot in the store. And mm-hmm. really, if you want to, um, you know, go down an aisle and it's crowded, you can just slip something into your pants or your coat or especially yeah. now that winter's coming. But he says he does it. He says he does it in self checkout. And you'd think that if there's any place where they'd have really good cameras, I'm working on a story that's not directly related to this, but it's going to be on the national in a couple of weeks' time. And I was looking at uh, some security footage from a major retailer, and man, the quality of their security cameras and their ability to zero in on people is uh, is amazing. Well, even at Walmart, at the self checkout, they're filming you. Yep. It's 
got you on camera. So, you know, I'm sure if something goes, I don't know how they could match, but unless somebody spots that you're, you're trying to steal, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what the answer is. I like the self-checkouts. I like to get in and get out. And, and um, you know, there's always somebody there to help me if I get stuck. Yep. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Thank don't you. Know. Thank no you, answers. Lynn. <laughs> no, okay, no, but you, you know what? Lots of good, interesting comments. So you don't have to have all the answers to call our program. Uh, let's go from Oxford Mills, Ontario, to Hamilton, Ontario. And Lori Bell has called us. Hi, Lori. Hello, how are you? Good. So you, it says here you worked self-checkout at a big box store. So what role did you have? Uh, so I wasn't exclusively on the self-checkout. We all kind of take turns. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a cashier. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, sometimes uh, we'd have to cover the self-checkout. And um, and as an employee of a store, I wish uh, they'd get rid of self-checkouts and just go back to having a cashier that every customer had to go through. <laughs> and, and why is that? Well, because it's it's hard to to be that person watching the self-checkout. There's one person watching maybe six self-checkouts. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you're supposed to watch six people at once and not only watch what they're ringing in, like watch the physical items, but also watch the screen to make sure that everything's coming up. And so because I couldn't multitask like that, um, a customer got away with $1,300 worth of stuff without paying for it one Whoa. night. And, and so how did you... How did you figure out that they had stolen that? Because obviously you didn't see it in time to stop it. So when did you when did you figure that out? Well, um, it was within an hour of closing time at the mm-hmm. store, and um, I'm sure I'm not tipping off any shoplifters out there to say mm-hmm. <laughs> that you know there's less staff at that time of night, and so um, it, and it was slow. Uh, so I. I spoke with my coworker and said, you know, something fishy is going on uh, with the shopper. And they just said, oh, we'll just watch she rings everything in. So that's what I did. I made sure she rang everything in. And it was a lady with a, a kid in a stroller. And, um, you know, I made sure there wasn't anything hidden in the stroller. Mm-hmm. Um, but the lady gave her things and, and left. And it wasn't until about five minutes after she left that I went over to the machine and I saw that um, her credit card was declined. Mm-hmm. So she oh. hadn't actually paid for anything oh, she brought Oh, I see. So by the time you figured that out, she was already gone? Yep. Okay. All right. Well, I have walked away a few times from a, 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 a like a yeah a, a clerk and had my headphones on and uh, you know suddenly you know finally hear somebody yelling and it turns out that I hadn't successfully put through my credit card. But this clearly was not just a mistake. This was an attempt to well a successful attempt to steal thirteen hundred dollars worth of stuff. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and I, I felt so bad, I quit the next day. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Lori. Thank you very much That's for okay. calling us. Oh, thank you. Have a good night. Yeah, thank you. We have two minutes left, so let's take one more call. Let's go all the way out to St. John's, Newfoundland, and Sean Callahan is calling us. Hi, Sean. Hi, Ian. I won't be too long with this, but okay. when I'm listening to the stories about staff saying that we should eliminate the self-serve and so on, mm-hmm. it, it, it tells or reminds me of a interesting thing about a month ago at one of the Dominion stores here, mm-hmm. where in, in uh, like, I felt that I was being robbed or being, being uh, duped, you know? 
In, in uh, what way? Well, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, like oftentimes I'll go in, in like, like late in the evening and try to pick up something because I live a little off. And I'd uh, usually pick up uh, some salad, stuff like that. Anyway, there, there, were, there was one salad, a full big, a, a lot of it in a container for about half price. I think it was about $16, $17, and it was on for like $9. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, I'll grab that because it says like, like buy it now, use it tonight. Well, that yep. makes total sense. So I went over to the self-service because the, the, the one I was going to go, uh, go to was full with people and started to put it all through. I had about a dozen items. And I realized when I saw the bill that, there was, it was still being charged $17 for that particular item. Huh. So I called over one of the staff, like the lady you just talked to a minute ago, mm-hmm. and I pointed it out to her. She said, yes, you know, it's funny you should mention that because I've caught a few of those in the past because a lot of, a lot of customers think that once they put that sale tag on the top, there must be some kind of code when you go through a checkout, yep. especially the self-serve, to you know, capture it. Well, I've been doing this for years. I mean, you know, I live alone, so if I happen to get some, get a meal that's 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 good mm-hmm. for me and half price, I'm like, I'll grab it uh, for that night. And she said, that's really too bad. She said, you know, uh, like we've mentioned this before, but, you know, I guess no one's doing anything about it. And I said to her, if that was the reverse. If I was walking out the door without paying for it, you guys would be after me. Yep. And she said, oh, yes. And I said, but I have no way of knowing because I, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> realize it hadn't been uh, checked in at the right price. I'm a hundred percent, yeah. I just wonder how many times that's happened to me. Like, I, there's no way when I'm checking out, am I looking like a hawk at uh, whether I'm getting the prices I think I'm getting. So, Sean, you know what? That's a good reminder to all the people who are listening to double-check those things when they go through the self-checkout or even the checkout with the clerk too, right? Just to make sure that they're getting charged what they should be getting charged. Well, I think that, you know, it's not too hard to put a code on there. Yep. So that, uh, you know, 50% code is on the thing anyway. Yep. It shouldn't be too hard to have your programming in your checkout system. Just pick that up. Yeah, for sure. But not to do it. So, well, I mean, it, there's millions and millions yeah. and millions of dollars yeah. that are being being taken away from clients or customers by that. All right, Sean. Got to go. Thanks for calling. Thanks for getting me in. It's a great yeah. show as always. Again. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. And, and I got to think at most supermarkets, most of the time when they say 50% off, they reflect that in the code. But anyway, nice to... Uh, Be reminded that it's important to be vigilant. That's it for Checkup, the podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkup's live broadcast on CBC Radio from November 26th, 2023. If you want to share comments or appear on the show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners, Chuck Molgat, Alexa DiFrancesco, and Tori Goodwin. Special thanks to Julie Dupree, Walter Rinaldi, and Emily Chiarvesio. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Brendan Sylvia, Addie Krishnan, and Sean Foss. Technical production and editing from Will Yar and Matthias Wilson. Our program assistant is Mackenzie Rebello. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Abby Plenner, Steve Howard, Kate Helmore, and Rachel DeGaspers. Digital producer is Paul Hanchia. The senior producer of the program is Richard Goddard. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Check Up the Podcast will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.